0: Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas.
1: I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara and Raven Professor of Holocaust Studies.
0: Dr. Romer. It's so good to see you. How are you?
1: Hi, Dr. Valente. Good to see you, too. Glad to meet you here again.
0: Absolutely. So how have things been going with the School of Arts and Humanities, the Ackerman Center? Do you want to give us a little well, brief overview? A lot been going. Um, for For
1: starters, we are now almost at the end of October. So we just about, with a little bit of luck and fingers crossed, we will have managed to get everyone safely to Thanksgiving, which wasn't entirely clear at first when we started this semester. But I think for the time being, um, the quote unquote system that the university devised with our various teaching forms held, we've been able to contain the spread of virus on campus.
0: Very important. And
1: we had very important. And we've, you know, that has allowed us to continue, which is really, really critical. Um, You know, many of the classes that really require the face-to-face engagement. I mean, if you lately watch, you know, any of the online events, uh, we have like concerts that are streaming. We have, you know, sing performances, dance performances. And those all required a very, very controlled, but nonetheless, a certain form of interaction which required people meeting in place and I'm really thrilled that that all was still possible to be done because it makes such a big difference to all our students that they still have that and don't have to write everything off. They're missing already enough to begin with so we're happy about that. Ackerman Center just to tick through the boxes also done really well. You know we've been lecturing left and right. We are like the The lecturers, the fastest lecturers in the West of sorts, you know, and and we've found ourselves a lot of new friends that way. Uh, We are kind of constantly documenting our quote unquote global reach and we are filling that map. So there's loss and absence. Um, We would love to have the, you know, events with the good cheese boards and everything. But in the meantime, our work goes on. And that, I think, is very much the case also this week where we had to face... um, a formidable challenge, and that is what do we do with one of our, you know, real big anchor events, the Einspruch Lecture, that has been always our kind of key where everything began for many years. We brought in the most illustrious, the most celebrated Holocaust scholar um, that came to talk, um, to address on Sundays, a large, you know, wide-ranging community, and then on Monday, a more exclusive, you know, Academic community, but there was a large kind of community engagement um, mm-hmm. that was attached to it. And now to have none of that and to throw it all onto Zoom was a little bit of a challenge.
0: Absolutely, but nonetheless, it was such a great success. And so I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about how this year was really no different if we think about in terms of the community that gathers around one specific topic um, and it was actually in many ways, I think, very special that we had one of the last living prosecutors of the Nuremberg trials, who at 100 years old, was able to participate. And if perhaps we were in our regular face-to-face reality, maybe that wouldn't have been a possibility. And so would you like to talk a little bit about Ben Ferentz and and what this meant to us?
1: No, that's exactly it. In many ways, you know, we were you know, going through a good number of possibilities. And and the, the idea of inviting some illustrious speaker who, however, in this case wouldn't come to us, but speak online, I thought like, ah, mm. everyone would feel well, it's good, but it's not what it was. And so that's where we thought, well, how about inviting someone who wouldn't travel to us in the first place? And so that's how this idea came about with Ben uh, Fenris. And we also, I mean, he's of, of elevated age, you said it. And so, in this case, um, we had a team of designated scholars, um, legal scholars of, of, of the law, um, of the Holocaust, of the Nuremberg trial, interview him beforehand. Everyone had a chance to to view that interview. We showed 15 minutes during the uh, actual Einstein's lecture, and then we had the three lecture on different aspects of Ben's life, of the Nuremberg trial, and of the whole international court system and justice system in general. And so that in its way became, you know, I think quite distinct again. But then also I just couldn't help myself feeling with this one in particular that it was uncannily timely of sorts uh, because you think, well, you know, here you have this hundred-year-old man who in the last 10 minutes of his talk says, well, what is this mantra? never give up, never give up. And so what is it that he doesn't want to give up? Um, He still thinks that what the world truly needs is some kind of system, judicial process, by which uh, criminals can be held accountable in an international court. And he was born in uh, 1920, the year when uh, the League of Nations came into um, ex- you know, existence when the Versailles Treaty had just kicked in. And so in a world which had both seen, the, you know, at that point the worst of, of what nationalism hatred can do, the First World War, but then had also, you know, rallied behind the idea of, of a league of nations that would could overcome these differences that had together with the Versailles Treaty not just instituted peace, but also had you know, found a way to vouch, say, for the safety of minorities in the various nation emerging nation states, and everyone thought they were off to maybe a good start of sorts,
0: but not quite, as we know, obviously, and that's his life, right? Absolutely. And if we think about, you know, the opening statements that he actually made during the Nuremberg trials...
2: This was the tragic fulfillment of a program of intolerance and arrogance. Vengeance is not our goal, nor do we seek merely a just retribution. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity regardless of his race or creed. The case we present is a plea of humanity to law. We shall establish beyond the realm of doubt, facts which before the dark decade of the Third Reich would have seemed incredible. Courts will show that the slaughter committed by these defendants was dictated not by military necessity, but by that supreme perversion of thought, the Nazi theory of the master race. We shall show that these deeds of men in uniform were the methodical execution of long-range plans to destroy ethnic, national, political, and religious groups which stood condemned in the Nazi mind. Genocide. The extermination of whole categories of human beings was a foremost instrument of the Nazi doctrine.
0: We know that after this prosecution, the trials that took place this desire for establishing an international criminal court, um, it, it had its successes, but of course we know there there's a lot of room still. And this was, I think, a little bit of what the panelists, the three professors that were, during the live panel, were, were discussing. Uh, not directly, but they they touched a little bit on this idea of just how difficult it is to actually truly be committed to this cause especially when a country such as the united states itself doesn't sign on to this uh, to this agreement and so these are some of the the issues that i think like you say in this long span of his life you know from that beginning 45 when he was we see the video he's a young man full of life talking about this and in many ways he's still the same you know that very positive way of looking at the world but still that commitment to really seeking justice and in, in, in being kind of a beacon of light and of hope uh, towards this idea of a better world. And so I would like to add here a little bit of of, of his interview, this interview which is actually hasn't been done before. This is the only interview we know of of him at 100 years old reflecting back on his life, and I will make sure to link here for all of our listeners.
3: I have been working to create the International Criminal Court because if you're going to have a peaceful world, you have to have some other means for settling in disputes besides going out and killing the guy you don't agree with. And the best way of doing that is to have a court of some kind, an objective court, which will decide it. And uh, uh, even if it's a wrong decision, it'll be better than the current system where you go and kill everybody until you get tired. And then you declare, each one declares victory, and then they start killing each other again. That's the current system. And we're spending billions and billions of dollars are perfecting the weapons for that system, and the purpose is to kill more people more effectively. Instead of using the money to satisfy the legitimate complaints of many people who are desperate because they have no food, they have no money, or they have no environment, whatever it is, instead of using the money to help the people and eliminate their justified complaints, we use the money to kill the people in the hope that, ha, 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 then we will show them who is in charge. And I hear, America is the greatest, Deutschland über alles. Sounds like Germany all over again. Uh, So uh, I tell the young people that uh, it's a dangerous world, a very dangerous world. And uh, maybe we'll be like all the other planets in space. No life on it. I hope not. But uh, I've done the best one guy can, one little guy from Transylvania who lived most of his life in poverty. Uh, All the money that I have earned in the stock market and real estate speculation, I give back to charity. I will go out the way I came in with nothing. So I thank all those who are of the same mind who recognize the need for new thinking, particularly among the young people, to settle your disputes by peaceful means only. And no matter what the settlement is, you're gonna be better off than if you say, you're gonna settle it by killing the other guy because you think you're better than he is. Uh, that's my message.
0: I'm really glad that we had him as a guest and it was really a, a very special event that we were able to put together. No very
1: much. I think he was an immensely moving speaker of sorts Absolutely. also in, in that video, but I think it's also in many ways the Nuremberg trials are a perfect example of this, you know, need of of three things essentially coming together, truth, justice, and if you have those two, then memory or forms of can can kind of come. And in a way, you could say, you know, it's the, if you scroll back in time a little bit and you look at the trial and then you put maybe Ben into the 1990s, the end of the Cold War, the kind of coming together, the ICC, the Hague, then at that point, it seems as if at last, at the end of the century, we collectively have turned a corner and we've accomplished something. Germany's in the throes of reuniting itself. Um, it's it's if anything acknowledging its horrendous past ever more so with the various memorials and museums that continue to draw on and be inspired also by the evidence that has come from the various trials. So this would almost you know give rise to not a quite triumphant, but almost of a at last. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you, you we don't we didn't end in there. But we moved further, and so now it's that kind of wish for this international um, court that could could kind of prosecute and kind of you know complete that plea of humanity for justice, as he says there, is if if anything further removed from us than it ever has been at this point. And so I think that's quite unfortunate that the, this kind of ongoing wish that came in, in, immediately out of, out of the first world war and then even more so out of the second world war also with the kind of convention on, on genocide and with the human rights declaration meaning the attempt to protect both groups and individuals yeah. uh, if, if if anything these days looks more compromised than ever
0: Absolutely. And, you know, this past Thursday, my colleagues Pedro Gonzalez and Amy Kerner from the Ackerman Center, we did a film discussion based on the Spanish film The Silence of Others that is a very powerful documentary that was filmed over the the span of six years. And it has won all kinds of international awards. It's a phenomenal film that I can't recommend enough to everyone to watch. But what the film does is it really depicts this struggle that you're talking about, the three things that are not coming together. What happens when those three things don't come together? Truth, justice, or memory. So the film is really depicting the struggle of a group of people who were victims of the Spanish dictatorship, Franco's 40 years dictatorship. And what becomes really important about this film is that it shows... Um, the way in which the law, the amnesty law, the 1977, the so-called promulgación de olvido, a pact to forget the past, where it forgave the torturers and it forgave those who were seen as enemies of the state, so everyone was welcome back. And in the film shows the consequences of that inability to look back and to have a very truthful, a very honest conversation about what happened. The fact that. Hundreds, if not thousands, of, of, of babies were stolen from their mothers. Thousands were tortured. Thousands were killed. Um, if we think about even you know the half million that went into exile because of that system. So the film really tries to work with this. But at the very center is the question of the memory. So it's really the victims' memories fighting for justice and trying to fight for for the truth. But we see how that is a very fraught idea where even the current government, even the current monarchy of Spain has this desire to let's not open op- open up old wounds. And sadly, as you already alluded to Dr. Romer, if we take a look at all of the Latin American dictatorships, you know, there's an exception here or there, but the question of what comes at the end of every single one of these dictatorships is some form of a amnesty law. So in the case of Brazil, the same thing happened and amnesty is passed. And for example, the current administration even denies that there was ever a dictatorship. Right. And so we see how very complicated it is in the 21st century when, you know, these major countries have not been able to come to terms with it. And and we see the consequences and how there is a mistrust in the government because of this inability to actually face what happened.
1: You know, in in, I think in the movie, The Silent of Others, it's even more in many ways perplexing because there's nothing really, the stakes don't seem to be that high any longer. What we're looking at on the other side are these, you know, the sweetest of grandmothers I know. Uh, that have their eyes filled with tears because what they want to make sure is that their father finally gets buried in a proper way? They finally, quote unquote, want to bring him home. So it's not that they're reclaiming properties, it's Absolutely. not that they're interested in indictment or anything like that. If anything, they just want to have closure, closure. they want peace or anything like that. So, you know, in lots of ways, this memory as a way of healing can never quite occur in those cases. But I think the other part about that movie that unfortunately is also quite telling in this kind of the silent of others, that there are lots of others that are silent and have continued to be silent. And I mean, we have to also remember that Spain in that many other ways has been an otherwise immensely well-integrated country into the European Union. And early on became a partner also to the United States. And I think yeah. we 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 often forget how much of the kind of silence of the neighbors, so to speak, the big neighbors, not just the individual that lives next house and has turned to the other side, has also allowed these things to continue to go on. But I think that movie together with Ben, you know, who now talked to us in the same week, just also changes our way of thinking about the past. The past is not that the distant, it's not that it's you know, it's all ended in forty five. I mean Spain and Franco they lasted into into the seventies, neighboring Portugal was no better. The dictatorships in Latin America um even you know existed further 80s. on to the eighties. And if anything, any of these lingering issues of, of acknowledgement of of indictments of and they they are still very much around and, and unresolved to this day, and have continued to, I think unsettled on these countries. I mean, there's you know in particular with these you know missing people, you you start to understand that there there there's almost a way how we have to unfortunately think about how a absence of family members describes such a presence that actually continues to haunt that while there might not be there, that their absence actually so forcefully writes the present and the future, which for us as historians or as scholars in general, it's almost an impossibility. How do you write history that comes from absence and not from from visible forces? How do you document the this kind of emptiness that, however, becomes such a driving force? But it does. It does. I mean, and I think... We have to understand that in the end, you know, in the order can change possibly or not, but you have to have justice, truth, and memory. And they only together can they create the possibilities of new new futures. And I think that's what's so painful to see in that movie, how uh, these central figures have been advocating for this ever since and what they're trying to to accomplish is the renaming of some places that they are not any longer glorifying uh, Franco. And and I think in one of these exchanges, one of the women just tellingly says, well, you, you don't have in Berlin any longer the, the, the <laughs> avenue of Hitler or
0: something like that. No, you don't, you know? Absolutely. And I think that that's why, you know, if we think about the Nuremberg trials and what it was, you know, trying to accomplish, I think... If we had capital as a world, you know, if, if these countries that have this history were able to look at that and see, you know, of course, what comes after for Germany is also not, you know, a clear path in, into, into yeah. it's a very complicated one. However, the commitment to justice, to truth, I think is one that we have to continue to pursue. And so I would like to close by letting Ben Ferencz say a few more words. And we hope that everyone will enjoy this episode and we will continue next month. Thank you, Dr. Romer.
1: Thank you, Dr. Valente.
3: We have made good progress. I want to point to the progress because I never end on a sour note. We have, the progress is remarkable. First of all, I'm still alive. (laughs) Nobody killed me. (laughs) That's that's a miracle. There've been a few attempts. Uh, Secondly, We have made enormous strides in the field of human rights protection. Thanks to Michael Basler, from others, Uh, we have universal declarations of human rights. We have the International Criminal Court was finally established after years and years of labor in which I was in one of these pushing very hard for it. And as a recognition, they gave me the honor of making the closing remarks in their first case was against an African or using child soldiers. And uh, I did the closing remarks and I repeated what I had repeated in the grouping case. It's a plea of humanity to law. Uh, we've got to replace the killing of people uh, as a, an act of government by helping the people instead. And uh, so that's what I do. I thank all of you who are sitting here, and all those who may hear this message for the help you can give in that direction. It's not easy, but the progress is there. We do have many courts now functioning. They don't function very well because they're newborn babes, and uh, some people don't understand it. Some people don't want to cooperate. It's difficult to do it best because you have to learn the foreign language. You have to get the evidence in the countries, all of which I have done in the earliest days. And I know how difficult it is to present a case to a fair jury and a fair trial and hold only those who are found guilty responsible for what they do. So uh, that's my message to the people in Texas and the rest of the world. My appreciation to uh, our friends here who are giving us a chance to convey this message. And uh, I have three pieces of advice, which I always give one. Never give up. Two, never give up. Three. Never give up. (laughs) That's That's it. I hear you all screaming, never give up. I wish you the best of luck. Good luck to you all. Thank you for giving me this privilege. Thank you, Ben. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much, Ben, for spending time with us.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn more about the Ackerman Center, please visit utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on social media to receive notifications of upcoming events throughout the course of this semester. You can find us on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center and on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Stay safe and until next time. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.